Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. We're on some episode in the 100s. I don't even know what number we're on right now. You've lost track, I have finally. lost track, but this is exciting because tonight we're talking to Donato, the Rev, the brother, the patron, um, and his name is Mark. But So we have another Mark in the circle, so we don't want to confuse the two. So not tonight, he's just going to be called Donato. Talking about Gnosticism, we had the pleasure of having Donato at the pub with us. Actually, quite a, quite a bit the last year, so he's been a regular, but um, the beauty is is that every now and then these regulars have these secrets that, uh-huh, <laughs> these, secret yeah, knowledge. these secrets that were like, you should give a presentation on this, <laughs> because this is an ancient part of the Christian tradition going back to at least the second century, if not before that. We'll dig into more of the history in a second. Tonight, uh, Janelle and I are with the other Mark, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, yeah, there. There he is right there. And we got we have some announcements too. We just did El, we just did Altruist. Altruist which was, was fun. amazing. It was so good. So if you want to if you want to do that in your city or your, or your town, we'd love to help you yeah, do it. Absolutely. I think other cities and towns should do something like that. Why not? Bringing interfaith leaders together, drinking beer all for the good causes of the local community. Yeah. It yeah. was great. And I'm picky. All right. Well, hey, we, we'll we, take it. We packed in a lot in five hours for sure. And then we have Wild Goose, the right. festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina, coming up July 11th through the 14th. We'll have a booth. Yep. We are going to have We a- have koozies and pens and multiple stickers. And this year we have tea stickers. So you all asked for them last year. You get them this year. So two things that are new. Purple koozies. Woohoo! And coffee tea Pins. No, no, no. Stickers. 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 Okay. Stickers. Which reminds me of just yesterday. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go off here. I don't, I don't, it's my ADHD moment. My, my youngest daughter is in dance class, and she couldn't get a stamp sticker at the end of the class because she took off her tap shoes, and they wouldn't put them back on, and then she kept eating her shoelaces. So, so if you behave poorly at Wild Goose, you're not going to get a sticker or a pin. <laughs> Do not or eat your shoelaces. Do not eat your shoelaces at yeah. Wild Goose. Ew. Stranger things happen there, believe me. Way stranger. But, but you, sh- you should go. You should check it out. If Even if you know you got to fly across country. We've had friends that have done that before. We're pretty much flying across country. Yep. And it's a way to, I think, connect with people who are like-minded and also just very different from you at the same time. So, yeah, there you have it. They have a podcast, so make sure you subscribe to that one as well, Wild Goose Festival. Okay, Gnosticism by Reverend Brother Mark Donato. So we're going to ask you about your background first because we got, we're going to get personal before we get nerdy. You did not come out of the womb a Gnostic. No, almost no one does. I would be really surprised <laughs> to meet anyone who came out of the womb a Gnostic. Um, would sort of defeat the purpose, I think. <laughs> but the, I was uh, raised in an Episcopalian family, and um, my mom later became a priest of that church and then went through the thing that, Lots of kids go to, they go away to college and reject all of the stuff. And so I did that. And, um, but I was really, really interested in religion, studied religious studies for a little while. I thought that was where I was going to go. And then I decided I wanted to be a monk. I found Buddhism and wanted to become a monk. Um, that didn't end up happening in any real way, but I studied Tibetan Buddhism in, um, Colorado and then New York city. And then came back to Colorado and studied at a, a Thai Theravada temple and then that sort of started to peter out for me as my daughter was born. Just time to practice, and I, the community was 
from Thailand, so it wasn't that connecting. So then I was looking around, what to do, what to do, and I found um, Gnosticism. I was looking for a way to get back into Christianity that I could that I could get behind, and that was that was what I found. And it was like a fire got lit under me, and found a church and read, 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 read a lot of stuff, and then that has been my path since then. And I think probably most people listening before 2003 had no idea what Gnosticism was unless they went to seminary because of the Da Vinci Code, which didn't come up the other night, but that's what made at least this teaching come about within not just academic circles, they were already talking about it, but really just the predominant Christian world. People started writing books in, in those circles to say, hey, you know, be, be warned because, you know, this is a heresy and whatnot. And we'll, we may get into like some things that are heretical compared to conventional Christianity as we go through these. Uh, but I mean, for you, when you, when you were growing up at all, did you know anything about Gnosticism? Not a thing. I didn't, I, I was interested in um, magic. <laughs> okay. So I, you know, my first career goal was to be a wizard. Um, so I started Good looking goal. at things like alchemy and hermeticism when I was a kid, just in terms of looking at images and things like that. And so that stuff always sort of spoke to me. So that, that stuff is a pathway. A lot of people get to Gnosticism through that and through the Da Vinci Code, a whole bunch of people who are now priests of different Gnostic churches started with the Da Vinci Code. So Do all their sermons sound the same though? Like Dan Brown books? <laughs> None of them sound anything like a Dan Brown book. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's not, that's not, that's not a real thing, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. he, he uses some things that are real, um, but he, he's he makes fiction up writer, a lot. so he puts up a lot. You know, isn't even making, the, the main female lead, isn't it Sophia? Is that the name? I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. We'll, we'll get to Sophia in a second. That's yeah. A, yeah. Wisdom. Okay. Yeah. So gnosis is to know in Greek, and then you make a distinction between the difference between uh, the Western idea of knowing and then this Gnostic idea of gnosis knowledge. Can you define that? Yeah, not, gnosis is the kind of knowing that you, you I, I describe it as knowing it in your body. Um, different people describe that different ways, but I feel like it's, it's the difference between having some knowledge about a thing. You can have a lot of knowledge about a thing and not be able to, gnosis is more like you can't act from a position of not knowing it. It just lives inside you. Um, is this anything like Zen knowing where... It's like knowing without premeditation, um, knowing without, uh, yeah, without knowledge. It's not like not doing. Like Zen has not right. doing. It's not. It's not the same as that. It's. Um, it would be like. It would be like when you wake up in the morning and you look out the window and there's the sun. This doesn't surprise you at all. Right. The sun is going to be up. You just you know it and it's like part of your life. I think the Zen, it's uh, it's not premeditated, but I do I do think it is a knowing. It's it's just not premeditated. Probably so. <laughs> I don't, I'm not a, I'm not super familiar with Zen. I was just I was just noticing some of the similarities. Yeah. Kind of like driving your vehicle, and all of a sudden you realize I've been driving for thirty minutes, and I had no idea I was driving. Yeah, although that's then scary. There's, a, there's an automaticity to that too. That's also not gnosis. That's like the piece that's, uh, you know, when you're driving and you realize you're that that part where you realize, oh, I don't, I didn't even know I was driving. Um, that's sort of like the the daily realm you try to escape to some degree, and these things will happen, like somebody will pull in front of you, and suddenly you're very present mm -hmm. in the car, and that. And that's a, 
weird analogy that I had never thought about before. So I don't, I don't know how to how to make it work, but but yeah. that part is is another part of Gnosticism. Being being awakened, <laughs> even though yeah, it's a different kind of an awakening. Yeah. And then yeah. you got ten, 10 and two, white knuckling it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, you can think of a lot of things in life when that happens. So, um, man, I don't want to jump to that yet because there's so much to, just to unpack from the basics. So, let's start with just the theology part, the God part, the Creator, the, the created, all the aspects of that and the levels of that. So, these are the big ideas that you wrote down here, and we're just kind of going to go through each one. There's five of them here. We'll probably weave around at the end. If we didn't cover all five, it's because we didn't count to five, but it was a part of our discussion. (laughs) The first one is that the universe was created by an ultimate God. And then you said that God emanated all the different parts of creation so that they're they're a part of God while also being distinct from God. And that's called what you would refer to as panentheism, different from pantheism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then in this view, all things are expressions of God, even when they are obscured or they're covered up by false beliefs and ignorance. So there is an ultimate God. There is this what other religions would call a source or Adonai, but but this is a different kind of ultimate God. Right. Right. This would be the God above God. Okay. <laughs> um, because the part that's important in this part is also that they're, you know, that all things are expressions of God, even when they're obscured or covered up by false beliefs or ignorance. Because the the really important sort of mythological thing about um, Gnosticism is that there's a false god, like a lesser god, who then part of his plan was to make it hard to see beyond himself. Egoic kind of guy. This is what you refer to as the Demiurge? Yeah. Different names for it as well? Yaldabaoth, Samael. There's a bunch. There's a there's a great beer that Avery used to make called the Samael. It's part of their demon <laughs> series, by the way. Yeah, there was one at uh, Fermentra called the Demiurge. Also, that was kind of nice. So then, okay, the Demiurge is different from. Is there a name for this ultimate God that's distinct? The One, or um, sometimes God the Father, but that always seems a little odd to me because that God is. Clearly not gendered. Like, there's not a gender to that God at all. Mm-hmm. It's beyond the idea of gender, which then, if you get into sort of a Carl Jung kind of idea, is important because then you have the the non-gendered over God and then a ma- masculine and feminine principle of the, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So then there's aspects of all of creation, all created or all things that are, are, are made by this, well, not from that God, from the other God, though, that there are expressions that are... I mean, the, and that's that's part of that gnosis, so that we we do tap into that source. There, yeah, yeah. So all, but, all, so all I'm, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, often when people think about gnosticism, it's all about all matter is bad, right? Spirit is good. Where in this sense, um, there is still there is still good because uh, all things have that living panentheistic sort of expression. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Yeah, but it's a but it's an it's a distinction that I think gets over used i think because the the thing is that really the the like created world the physical world is an obscuration of that emanation of of so some people some gnostics really love that idea and get really into it and get like it's all a big conspiracy theory and um to me that doesn't seem useful um it seems like it's in the same way that people argue against there being a god at all you can argue against the 
universe, created world being bad in a very easy way. But in a Buddhist way, also, you can say there's no, there's no inherent existence to all of these things. You can always find where they, where change happens and they are, you know, the delicious food turns into not so delicious excrement and the beautiful flowers turn into rotten stuff. And, um, and that, that kind of cycle, um, Gnosticism is really not tolerant of that. It doesn't, it thinks that cycle is a bad idea and um, is looking for the places where you're just seeing the, the divine. You gave us a couple of movies yeah. to think about. Can you share that with us? Well, I'm, I'm a weirdo in Gnosticism because my favorite is the Truman Show. Lots of mm -hmm. Gnostics really like you know The Matrix or this like Snowpiercer, all these other ones that are clearly Gnostic movies. But Truman Show is based on the Gnostic myth. It's pretty, I mean, even, even the names sort of go with it. And there's this, the character of Kristoff, who's the director of, of basically Truman's life. Right? He sits up in this room and he has all these minions. And what they do is organize Truman's life. He's created this whole world for him. It looks really pretty. He's trying to make Truman happy, but he wants to keep him in one place. And so that part where, you know, Truman's going to escape. He's, he's going he's gonna to leave. And the creator's like, truly, he's heartbroken that mm -hmm. this, this, this person, he's sort of, you know, he hasn't created Truman, but he's ruled his life. Yeah. He's going to get out. Um, and that, that's such a wonderful depiction of that feeling of that jealous God who, you know, might mean well, but it's an egoic thing. It's like a thing that's about control and, and about, power. Yeah. And power. Um, and, you know, using that power for good, you know, making Truman's life really pretty, making sure that he has a wife and a beautiful home and all of that kind of junk. But then that's all illusory. And so... That's that's that God. So can you break? Let's break that down uh, so people can maybe even better understand the, how that movie fits into Gnosticism. So there is the, the Demiurge God, mm -hmm. and that so talk about that that creative myth story that then speaks to that Demiurge. That so then, I mean, it's in the Matrix as well, yeah. And you'd refer to that. So yeah. I, mean, I think those are playful analogies in films, but it's it's hard it's hard to follow when we are in the Judeo-Christian worldview, understanding this is the creation story that we know. Yeah. What's this Gnostic creation story? Well, there are lots, but, and so they're all, they all have different, different versions. That's one of the things people, the, especially the early heresy hunters didn't like about Gnostics was they were creative and they made things up. Um, <laughs> but one of, one of the big ideas is that um, Eve eating the fruit of the tree was the best thing that could have happened. They were in this, you know, sort of like when Truman is in this world and then he starts to get a sense of like, this isn't right. Something is wrong. Um, and that, that I think the character's name is Sophie, who's the, who's the woman Truman's really in love with and yearns for, um, is the person who brings the fruit. And that, so the serpent and Sophia are sort of equated to some degree. Sophia emanates the demiurge. So she has this thing that's happened that she's done this thing that, that created this mess. And her response to that is to fix it. And so she does several things. One thing is trick the demiurge into breathing life into humanity, which is the life that's the, that's the emanation of God. That's the real spark of things. And then the next thing is to make them eat of the tree. And that, that opens the door. So I think I asked you this uh, on Thursday. So, 
Sophia made a mistake and created um <laughs> Yaldabaoth. Yaldabaoth. Yeah. Who now is that equivalent to a Satan character or not? Yeah, it's, you you asked me that the other night and I um so I I run in pretty mystical liberal kind of religious circles. So Satan to that group is like not a thing. It's not like thing. not a big deal. Or or if it is, it's you know Satan, the adversary. The- or that, accuser. The, yeah, that, that thing that you fight against. It doesn't have the Luciferian stuff. Some, mm-hmm. um, so but that's it, a whole it, different It is that jealous trail. guy that you see in Torah, yes? Which, which one? Because the, when I think of um, the God who says, I'm a jealous God, the God who sends the flood. Right. The God, yes, that's the that's That's the, Aldebar. That's the Demiurge. Yep, yeah, for sure. Okay. And so she made a mistake by creating him. And then when she breathed, when he breathed life, did that give us the real divine stuff? It or did. did it give us broken divine stuff? Well, it gave there I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah. Um at least as I know it in my world of Gnosticism, it's not broken stuff. Okay. It's hidden stuff. It's it's clouded. It's occluded by the creation, which is the mess. But it's the real thing. It's and, the... and so Sophia then is sort of the she's a salvific figure in that way too, as well as the. She's allowing giving us the pathway by giving us the awareness, the wisdom, opening the door for us to then start seeing again. Yeah. Whereas if if Yaldabaoth had had his way, we would have never woken up. Right. And we would have right. just, We'd just lived. be living in that Truman world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, and she's important too because, in, you know, there's that, there's sort of past mythological part. And then there's the part of, then she's also active in the universe now and is looking to help you and to draw you, help you come on out. your path. Yeah. So, so going back to my own tradition within the Genesis story where you have this, the breath of God, the wind, the spirit that hovers over the chaos, would that be Sophia? The earth was no, that'd be empty. God. That, okay, so yeah, that that's a tough one because there's some there's some scholarship that um, that Gnosticism and that Christianity really was a, a attempt to restore the first temple uh, theology. Oh, and that the little bit that they know about that that story comes from that, and um, that there's a you know there's a goddess in that theology. There's a there's a whole bunch of things that then get brought down to. Gnosticism. Yeah, so uh, it is interesting because most people, most Christians, don't even think about the darkness that was that was there before there was light. That the, the, there was chaos. That there was the abyss. That there was all things that were wrong with the world, and then creation happened. So I, I just I was wondering if if that spirit that's hovering is Sophia, which then becomes the Holy Spirit, or if I'm just making connections. Mm. On my I don't own. know that. To me, there. So in Hinduism, the <laughs> Rig Veda, there's the, the Purusha, the like, there's this cosmic egg that exists in a formless place. And that, that starts to emanate, essentially. It's like an emanation story, almost the same. So instead of a chaotic place, it's a place of complete void, which is also a com- complete fullness. So the complete void means all of the differentiations don't exist. But when you get to the end where everything's okay, all the differentiations don't exist. So you're you're going from void to complete fullness. 
Um, that's yeah. <laughs> wow. That gets complex. I don't don't know how much farther we want to go down that rabbit hole, but it's so I think. Um, so the creation of the universe is that done by the one, or is all creation done by Yelda both? The emanation. It's when the when the emanations are described. They're like the one had a thought. And then there were two. And the thought thought about itself, and there were three. And it goes on and on like okay. that, which is almost like a, a platonic kind of dialogue or right. almost a Greek kind of thing. And then um, at the end of a series of, of binary pairs, there come these binary okay. pairs, is Sophia. Okay. And she's the last one because then she has a thought, what would it be like to create? Et voila, there's the... Okay. There's the demiurge, and she's done that independent of her partner. So there is this idea that the the pair, the masculine and feminine pair, have to both be involved, and she's done that independently, and that was what made the mess. And there's a whole bunch oh, of stuff okay. in Gnosticism about the the masculine and feminine becoming one, one again, and so that that's a recurring kind of theme. I had the thought too that you know Sophia independently creating the demiurge is sort of balanced by the virgin creating Jesus without a dad. Oh, interesting. But that's, yeah. I made that up. I don't know. That's cool though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would bring balance. Yeah. That would bring yeah. balance back to it. Um, so do you have you a theology that's rooted here, but then do you have like a cosmic theology that deals with all those original pairs and what's on the other side of, I guess, the veil. or uh, yeah. well, The veil came up. Yeah, um, the veil. That that was a significant image for Gnosticism as well as Christianity. So do you have, like, is there a thought, theology on of one side of the veil and then a different theology on the other side? It depends on who you're talking to. Because okay. there, you, like, there are a lot of the, the Nag Hammadi library was discovered, and that's where you find a lot of these Gnostic texts. And there are a whole bunch of them in which they get really into the minutia of this emanated this and this thing, and there are three okay. pairs, and there are the five and the seven and the nine, and the, all these different numbers. And so it gets really, really into the arcana in that way, um, a lot like the Kabbalah. Like there's a lot of similarity to that, that kind of like really intense description of a cosmology okay but this is the one we're in so right. this is the one that that uh takes takes precedent so okay. what would be and i i don't know how much you know about hinduism but what would be the difference between this situation and maya the illusion yeah mythologically they're different in that um in maya there's in the Hindu stuff. There's just an assumption that it's all that you know. There's illusion, but behind the illusion is this. You know, there's like it has a it has a bigger view, is right? Be, is beyond the illusion. Yeah, and, and there's then, you know, and in in in, in uh, Hinduism, they will talk about God um, creating individuals, creating separation in this uh, illusion, which is the same mm -hmm. type of thing as you know, yeah, the demiurge, right. And it, it just, I'm, I'm, what I'm kind of fascinated with, and I, and I haven't been able to track it down, is um, more of an idea where 
did uh, Gnosticism originate? Was it Eastern? Was it Greek? Was it, I mean, there's, you know, they've, they've got like uh, offshoots of it today that are in Iran. Yeah. Um, and I, I'd love to know more of the origins. Well, I don't know original origins. There's some theories that it came out of an Orphic, uh, like an Orpheus cult um, that predated um, Christianity. There's some other, a whole bunch of, it's like sort of hermetic, the alchemy, alchemy people and those kind of Mystery guys religions. really like the idea that it came from ancient Egypt and that was passed in this way <laughs> through Egypt. Um, it's ironic that that would be true because some of the stories are about, you know, Egypt is the place that you have to get out of, of course, right. like, like Judaism, same, like that's the, the, the world in quotes. Um, and, but my, I'm sure you could find lots of sort of trace historical connections and they're, you know, Gnosticism really happens a lot in Alexandria right at the time that Alexandria is a huge nexus of ideas, including Buddhism and all kinds of stuff. But I really think that these ideas are not specific to a historical thing. I think they pop up periodically because they need to pop up. They're like a kind of a collection of, well, and that's kind of how it is not really fundamentally like a church. It is a, a constellation of ideas. Well, so some people really look at it as that, like a constellation of ideas. And there's lots of really great Gnostic writers who do that. There, um, one is Harold Bloom, who writes about Gnosticism. And are, like, he's great. His stuff is really interesting and smart. Um, I don't think he's interested in a church. But my expression of Gnosticism is in a church. And, and, and I feel like that's, that's an important expression of it because it... Um, a lot of early Gnostics began as people who were just going to church and then they'd have a Gnostic discussion after church. Um, and that was the, that's, that was the expression of Gnosticism. But the, you know, a lot of time has passed and the theology is different enough that if you go to church and you are just attending a Catholic church or Episcopalian church, we tend to be kind of, Gnostics tend to be pretty sacramental. So we like the smells and bells. So we tend toward those kind of churches. Um, but the theology is really different. And it, and it, so the services feel different. And you've been talking about embodied religious practice, and yeah. there is the embodied stuff in the in those sacramental churches, but it's not as intentionally so. In the Gnostic Church, you're really like you are focusing on the liturgy and the the magic that happens in there, and you know, forgiveness of sins, the building, the temple, the transfiguration, like all of these things that are events that are uh, like, like kind of hocus pocusy, and that's really gone from a lot of modern religion. In fact, it's sort of looked down on, um, but Gnostics really like that, that stuff. That would have been the genesis of sacraments. Yeah, right, right. With the original intensity, maybe? I hope so. That's the goal. Some Gnostic churches are called primitive. The, the Joanite tradition that I come out of is, uh, calls itself the primitive church. Um, as in, like, hearkening back to the early stuff. Early stuff like indigenous or early stuff Early stuff like first century. Just right after Christ. Yeah. 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 I guess that's where it's, it is confusing to me as somebody who I spent quite a bit of time studying Judaism and then Second Temple Judaism and how rabbis think even throughout those first few centuries when the rabbinical order was, was becoming, right? Um, 
And it seems like a, it's, it's a big separation between Ju- from Judaism, the way that it was practiced around the time of Jesus, to then this Gnostic sect within Christianity. Yeah. It's, it's a big jump. So, so when you said first century, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I personally just have a hard time understanding how, how that how fits that into the first happen. century. Yeah. Well, and I might be wrong. Um, but but I, I think mean, I know, some I know, of it is I know Greek. it was around the second, so yeah. maybe it was the first, but yeah. it's, it, 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 just seemed, it just seems so different. Some of the stuff is like, how do you get salvation? The salvation part, I think, is probably where it connects. Because the salvation is from that kind of gnosis, gnosis of the divine. Right. So yeah, let's talk about that because yeah. that the the human salvation piece is is such a big difference with between conventional Christianity, which I think that theology probably does come later uh, uh, in in uh-huh. conventional Christianity. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that yeah, that let's talk about that, and then we'll maybe we can jump back to the Jewishness of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so the the salvation in Gnosticism is not about Jesus dying for your sins, that, that if, if, if a God was to demand that of his son, that would not be the God above God. That would be a God who, who needs something from people, who wants them to do a thing for, who, for him. Um, and that, so and that's a super, I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's one of those places where um, I think Gnosticism is Christian. Um, Many, many, many Christians would say, no way. That piece alone rules it out as Christianity. Um, but still, you know... This is, and this is where atonement theories become so tricky because there are so many that have developed throughout the centuries. And most Christians wouldn't even be able to tell you that there are theories, plural. They would mm, think that there's right. that penal substitutionary atonement theory where God pours out God's wrath upon his son so that he can look at you with favor. And that didn't come until later. Yeah, much later. And even so, when we had Pam Eisenbaum here, we talked about this probably about a year and a half ago with her. Yeah. When she talks about how, you know, Paul was not a Christian and that this idea of a child sacrifice would be appalling to first century Jewish people. Thus, Mm. Christianity probably didn't believe this. And so, like you were saying, uh, Gnostic salvation is probably more in line with rooted in Christian salvation because it's closer to Judaism. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, Yeah, but there's separation within Judaism, obviously. Yeah. so how do you get salvation as a, as a Gnostic? Where, where does that come from? And then it, it, what was the point of Jesus' death? So those are two separate questions. Yeah. But, well, how you get salvation as a Gnostic is you um, gain Gnosis. You um, become more and more in line. You were mentioned in Hinduism before. I mean, getting to the place of the not differentiated would be moksha in Hinduism, which is... Which is that the yeah. in in uh, Gnosticism you say in Greek the pleroma the fullness, um, which is the that place where things are not separated. They're not. There's not an. There's not ignorance. There's not a. There's not a me and a you or this and a that. It's all the one. Back to the one thing. And so gnosis actually refers more to the method of getting to the real. The, the ground of being, I guess. Maybe, yeah, maybe, but also the state, the state of being aware of that ground of all being. I, I, last few years, I read lots of contemplative teachers, um, Cynthia Bourgeau and Thomas Keating and all those guys, and um, that feels like the thing to me. That feels like that when they talk about non-dual, that's that kind of consciousness that's, that's you know, little by little, moment by moment, 
having those experiences of oneness back I, to the pleroma. I like that. Yeah, you mentioned non-dual because that is definitely the uh, the Hindu mm. way of looking at it, where it's not opposing like uh, you know spiritual versus physical. And a lot of time, a lot of uh, uh, descriptions of gnosis will t- say that it is dual, but it is. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe putting words into your mouth, but it's dual until it becomes non-dual. Does that make Does that make any sense to you, or am you're, I on the right? You're conscious of it. You're only you exist in a consciousness that's dual until you exist in a consciousness that's not dual. But the whole thing was non-dual from the start. Right. You just don't right. know it. Right. You just, well, and not know it by know it. I mean have gnosis of it. You didn't embody it. Yeah. So do you ever know you're saved? <laughs> no, not in the way like w- to be saved is a weird idea. Like in like it to be saved from what? Like that would be the thing, and the thing t- would be to be saved from the state of separation. So how you would know you were saved is that you would know that you were not in a state of separation, which would be cool. I mean, every and and the experiences I've talked to people and who've who I feel like are further down this path than I am are lots of little experiences that grow into bigger and bigger chunks of time and life. You know, one thing I like, um, and it's, it's just kind of, I don't know if it's a creative reading of, a, of a, the Bible or not, but, you know, uh, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And prior to that, there was only God. And if God is going to build something, he needs building materials. The building materials would have to be himself. There can't be anything but God, which is a neat way of, I use that when I look at Eastern religions versus Western religions, which always seems so um, demiurge-oriented, you know? Yeah. Well, that's panentheism right there. I mean, that's that's the stuff that's like... And that's, you had mentioned Richard Rohr the other night. Yeah. I'm reading his current book, Universal Christ. It sounds a lot like the Universal Christ, where... Because Christians have somehow trapped the Christ in just the historical Jesus figure, whereas the Christ has been here all along. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's fundamentalist Gnostics who would say that really it's only Jesus and it's really is the demiurge, like that want to solidify those things. But I feel like as my practice goes, and I talk to lots of Gnostics who feel this way, that they are getting more toward that universal. I'm reading that same book. So the um, that that idea that. Christ is in all things, and that distinction between things and like that part about Christ being the emanation part, the part that exists in the stuff, um, whereas God exists exterior to the stuff. <laughs> so here would be a, a confusing part for just a, a conventional Christian who grew up in the church. An Gnostic way of thinking, is Jesus trapped in a human body? That's that's how I would understand it. Or Or... I mean, is, does that make sense? Yeah, but that's 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 the gift part, right? God sent His Son to be trapped in this human body, and He's completely in. Like that's a, that's like there's some Gnostics who say like Jesus was never in flesh; He was always just spirit. Because so flesh floating is over the body, yeah, or like it was just this ghost that was a, like it wasn't a real person. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and and that's not that's not where I come from with that. Then that and that feels like the part about Jesus being in the body is really important. And I I 
I can justify that a little bit with the hermetic idea of in, in alchemy, what you have is the world. You have the stuff of the world. And what you're doing is perfecting that stuff. And that stuff was brought down from one source and then will return to itself completed. I hate to, I hate to keep bringing Hinduism into this, but there's a concept of Leela which is the idea that God is exploring himself using your consciousness. So it's like God acting out scenarios. Now, if God wanted the experience as we experience it, he could, in fact, I guess be an emanation, become one of us with the same illusion, you know, he, he, he Jesus, Jesus wasn't, uh, you know, didn't walk into the whole death thing uh, unafraid, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know where it I'm sounds, going with that. But. Well, I mean, it also, that sounds similar to kenosis and I would guess yeah, Gnostics are okay so. with kenosis oh, yeah, because sure. define, define kenosis. So the self emptying of Christ, you'll find the passage in Philippians two and I'm, Four through seven, but I'm not sure that's quite right. Um, but it's where Christ, we see this movement of Christ moving out of heaven onto earth, onto the cross, and then back up into heaven. Mm-hmm. And this, um, it's considered possibly an early hymn of the church or an early baptismal vowel to to know that this is what Christ did for us. But in it, it captures this idea of him becoming human and embodied and enfleshed that he might then experience that life and then then be set free back to heaven yeah is that a pretty does that show up in that seems right on and that's the idea that christ is an exemplar that's one of the things we get in gnosticism is that christ is the jesus is the exemplar christ is a different thing but which was an early atonement theory by the way was it oh good all right well then and and so then not only is Christ doing kenosis, but we should do that. We should do that. We should do that self-emptying, and we should do all of those things. That's part of, to be a Gnostic is not to be on the sidelines. So as an exemplar, then, um, and, and here I, 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 I don't know how to fit this term, uh, terminolo- terminologically with uh, what you're talking about, but... Uh, as an exemplar, then he could be. It's like Sophic, in in that he can affect salvation, which is knowing your true state by his example. He is of the true state and of human, and and we and we generally look at him as separate from us. He could be an example, an exemplar of what we are, and we're supposed to figure that out. Would fit. Yeah. (laughs) I think that that's how, I mean, I would say a lot of Protestants would kind of describe it, that he is uh, both the example and the thing to follow Mm -hmm. um, in how we live and how we go through that process. Um, One of the, sorry, this is a little rabbit trail. One of the things that happens sometimes with that idea of kenosis is this... um, basically self-punishment kind of narrative, This that self-emptying means that then I give up all of me right. to the point that I 
don't matter. Do, do you guys go that direction at all? I don't know anybody who goes that direction in my Gnostic circles, but I, w- I would say that it's much more in line with um, self, self-emptying self in the sense of the, the false self or self-emptying in the sense of giving really love would be the thing without regard. Um, and that, and not do it. I mean, that part where you get into the self harm part too, is when you're doing that out of a place that you don't really know, like you don't have the, oh, interesting. you don't have the gnosis of what you're doing. You're, you're acting it out. You're faking it till you make it. That is so, that is so insightful. Hope so. No, I mean, <laughs> so I think, okay. So my experience is where I think that idea was used a lot as well. We were still pretty young, mm-hmm. um, you know, late teens, early twenties, you know, I, lots of friends going across the world and have no idea what they're doing and no safety net and aren't being led by great people. And, you know, it's just a lot of pain and hurt and wounds. And I mean, I'm sure there are stories that turn out happy, but I haven't heard a lot of them to self empty out of a place of gnosis out of a place of love um, it might, it might limit how much you can do depending on how much light you have, but it yeah, would, maybe. but it would also though be, I don't know, just to me, that sounds so much more healthy to even, even if you can't get to like Christ dying for you on the cross, like you can't internalize all of that, which I don't think any of us can really in this lifetime, maybe, but like just from where you are and let that be enough. I, it always had these overtones where I came from of just, I mean, you give everything like without really any sense of knowing like that, that if you were trying to understand it, then you were blocking what God was doing in you. Mm. But this idea of doing it out of a place of acknowledgement and harmony with yourself that I don't know that just seems more productive and more healthy